This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. How are you doing today, Professor Gershon? Great, Liz. I hope you're doing well. And uh, today we're excited uh, to welcome attorney McKenna Rainey Gray to the show. She is a staff attorney at the ACLU uh, LGBTQ Justice Project. And uh, she's going to be talking today about legal issues facing members of the LGBTQ community. McKenna, good morning and and welcome to Illegal Terms. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the ACLU LGBTQ Justice Project? Yeah, I am from Mississippi. I grew up here and just always knew that the ACLU was a big, important, exciting place that you could work. And when I was job searching after I graduated from law school. There was an opening at the ACLU of Mississippi, which is an affiliate of the nationwide organization, the ACLU. And they were opening a position specifically to look at LGBTQ issues. So they created the LGBTQ Justice Project just to be able to have a full-time position working for education, advocacy, outreach, litigation, all of those things surrounding LGBTQ issues. When I was in college at Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, There was a gender studies minor opportunity. So I was an anthropology major with a gender studies minor, and it's something that I've always been interested in. I'm bisexual. I'm married to a man. And being able to work with my community in Mississippi, which obviously has a lot of issues in in ways that you can impact positively the LGBTQ community, it was an opportunity I could not pass up. Well, thank you. It's really – would you explain to us – I think some of the listeners may wonder who exactly are – members of the LGBTQ plus community? How is how is that uh, defined? I will give a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is it is generally anybody who is not heterosexual or cisgender. And cisgender is somebody who was born and assigned one sex at birth, and they still identify with that same sex. So I was assigned female at birth. I still identify as female. I am cisgender. So anybody who is not heterosexual or cisgender, they're usually in the LGBTQIA plus umbrella. And the long answer of that, it like takes me two pages to define the, the definitions of LGBTQIA, but it stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning. So if you're still trying to figure out what your gender identity or sexual orientation are, that would be questioning queer, intersex, and asexual. The plus also just means that a bunch of other specific identities that are not covered in that but are still sexual orientation or gender identity minorities. So people, in other words. I mean, really, you know, it's uh, it's, it's, it's human beings. So why did the ACLU form the LGBTQ Justice Project? One of the biggest ways that you can show that you're interested in impacting a specific area of work is by hiring somebody to do that full time. And we wanted to have somebody whose sole job was making the world better for LGBTQ Mississippians. So my bosses were trying to figure out what is a way that they could do that. And they wanted to hire an attorney so that we could bring impact litigation and have a legal aid clinic as well. 
Um, I also do advocacy things, so like advocating for policy changes that would be better for LGBTQ Mississippians and education and outreach. Like I go to all of the pride events that I can and table um, speak at events and do radio programs like this so that I can tell people what it is that I do. And if you have questions about LGBTQ rights in Mississippi and in the United States, we'd love to take your questions. Our guest is attorney McKenna Rainey Gray with the ACLU. You can contact us by email. That address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You know, we have a transgender individual in our family, and grandmas have a little trouble getting those pronouns right, and it's a hard thing for a number of people to accept. I think that our younger people are, it's part of their daily life. It's become now more mainstream and not in the closet. But, you know, some of our older individuals, that wasn't done there. So this is a new and interesting frustrating, confusing topic. If you have a question, we would love to respectfully answer it and try to help you understand. And because it's not just the individual, it's their family, it's our country. So that's why we're so glad to be able to put on this show and to be able to take listener questions. I would push back a little bit and say that it is not the, like the framing of it is new is, is a way that we're trying to grapple with it because it is so much more in our face. There's so many more people that we know in our daily life. And it is something that has always happened throughout human history. And it really is difficult grappling with it if it's not something that you grew up with thinking about from birth or like studied in college or, or just have personal experience with. Six years and I still get the pronoun wrong sometimes. And we, my husband and I just correct ourselves and move on. We are trying and it's a little different, but uh, we're, we're going with it. And that's exactly what you do. You acknowledge your mistake, you apologize, and you move on. Because the more that you draw attention to the mistake that you made, the more it is about you instead of just the person that you're interacting with. And, and I, I so appreciate this conversation. And, and, uh, and, you know, I agree. I think it was just people were more afraid to be themselves maybe 50 years ago than they are now. And so it's not like this is a new thing that's just started happening. Um, now, who does the project serve? You know, I, I, how would somebody get in touch with you, McKenna, if they had an issue that they wanted help with? It's LGBTQ Mississippians and people that live in Mississippi. If you're within the state of Mississippi, we're a statewide organization helping people all throughout Mississippi. So it doesn't matter if you're on the coast or almost all the way to Memphis, we'll, we'll be able to have a reach to um, either, like I do a lot of consultations with parents of LGBTQ students so that I can tell them more about what their rights are and have conversations about what is and is not okay to protect their kid in school. Um, so the way that you would reach out to me is LGBTQ at ACLU dash MS dot ORG, which I'm sorry, is, is a long, it's, it's shorter than my, um, name. Email well, address. Our, <laughs> we have lots of information that we put on our podcast. It's on our website in legalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also a podcast on all podcasting platforms. So we'll have lots of links and information on that page. And, and maybe, you know, an important question. Thanks for that, because that's also very helpful. What, what, is there a fee for someone who comes to, to uh, ask for your services through the ACLU? 
No, we're a nonprofit organization, and the way that it works is a lot of people can't afford to hire an attorney for this kind of consultation or to bring a lawsuit or to to challenge something. And that's one of the reasons that we decided we needed to have a legal clinic, because you can actually have problems finding an attorney to pay if you are an LGBTQ person in Mississippi. Sometimes just the the difficulty of a an attorney not wanting to take it or not wanting to be in front of a judge with that kind of issue, it can be difficult literally finding an attorney that you can just pay to to represent you. Um, so there's no fee whenever we do anything. We don't represent very many people. Um, we predominantly give free consultations, connect people to attorneys at legal aid clinics, and we have a growing referral network of attorneys that we can refer you to for also pro bono, meaning free representation. So you, so you have a list of attorneys who, who take these kind of cases as well and work with you. That's yeah, helpful. and at least once I've just been requested to just find an LGBTQ-friendly attorney in a specific city. So I consider that to be within my wheelhouse. All right. You can send your email questions to our address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing LGBTQ plus rights with our guest, attorney McKenna Rainey Gray with the ACLU. So if you're interested in learning more about your rights, I'm going to tell you how. This is in legal terms. Not everybody has a chance to listen to the whole show live. So if you've missed any part of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. ACLU of Mississippi has a great page where you can learn more about protecting your rights. Rights uh, concerning police encounters, voting rights, constitutional rights, in addition to the LGBTQ student rights, immigration rights, and abortion rights. That website is aclu ms. Dot org. This morning, we are talking about LGBTQ rights plus rights with our guest, Attorney McKenna Rainey Gray from the ACLU of Mississippi. It's so great to have McKenna here. I was just, just thinking, of, uh, wasn't too long ago you were in my Wills in the States class early morning, and uh, I taught that this morning. And you know, one of the things that always hits me in teaching that class is there are just so many ways to be human. Right. I mean, really, I mean, that's the point is, that, you know, there are, we, we are unique in our own ways, each of us. And so, you know, let's these laws that have been passed recently, uh, especially, you know, one more recently. But let's talk a little bit about some of the laws impacting the rights of members of the LGBTQ community. What uh, what is the Religious Liberty Accommodations Act and how, how does it affect um, LGBTQ uh, members of that of that or, people who are, who are LGBTQ. It's also called House Bill 1523 or HB 1523, and it is a bill that was passed specifically in response to Obergefell, which is the marriage equality case from 2015. And it defines three deeply held religious beliefs um, that someone can maintain and uh, act on behalf of or basically discriminate on behalf of. So it's that marriage is is one man and one woman, only between those two parties. Uh, sex is only within the confines of marriage and sex is sex as in like gender, like sexual, um, sexual identity is objective and unchangeable. So your sex assigned at birth is the same as it is throughout. And if you believe one of those three things, you can act 
in accordance with it. So it is basically um, framed as a religious liberty that you can engage in those kinds of activities, but it is really just a um, way that you can discriminate against LGBTQ people, meaning people who are have a different sexual orientation than heterosexual, people have a gender identity that is transgender or not cisgender, and also people that have had sex outside of marriage. Yeah, I, I, um, I was always surprised at that because I, I really wonder how you test someone's deeply held religious belief. I mean, that's something personal to them. And do, do you have someone follow them around to make sure they are going to church every Sunday and that they're really, you know, following the rules completely themselves and maybe not cheating on their spouse or anything like that? Or is that how we do it? I mean, how do you, I'm not even sure how you test that. I mean, that, that's just my, my thought on it. There's, but, yeah, uh, there's legal precedent that shows that you, you, um, in some ways, you're just supposed to kind of accept it and you can't probe too deeply. And that's just a constitutional issue, the way that you define whether or not it is a deeply held religious belief. But it's not something that would probably be challenged too much in Mississippi. I think a lot of people would identify with having those religious beliefs. So what, what types of services does the, uh, the act affect? We know about the cake baker, for example. Um, but what other types of services might it impact? So cake baking is a type of public accommodation that's something in sales or just kind of something public facing that you offer. It also covers medical care, and it was in part designed to cover issuing marriage licenses. It's for the Kim Davis style uh, county clerk who didn't want to issue a marriage license. That was one of the ways that it was designed to to work. As far as I know, that's never actually happened. Um, and it also would cover adoptions and housing and employment I, I would point out that there are that's in contradiction to many, many federal laws. So if you are discriminating on the basis of LGBTQ status in housing and employment, that will be problematic in that like there are legal ways that you can challenge that in court. It's just not going to be within state court generally. So if there's a federal law prohibiting discrimination and a state law allowing it, which one would take precedence? It would in like in the case of housing, you've got um, HUD, the Housing and Urban Development Department, and their like their laws are are going to be like if you're going through that administrative process, they're going to be applying their own laws, and that's the way that you're going to have a remedy through um, housing in the federal area. It's the same for equal opportunity employment. Like if you're going through the EEOC for employment discrimination, they're going to be applying their own laws in order to find administrative remedy. If you're in a court system, then if you're in federal court, they're um, very, like to me, very obviously going to apply the the federal law, the federal anti-discrimination laws as they are written. And um, I don't think the Religious Liberties Accommodation Act would be involved. So, you know, the the cake baking, the argument was it was a work of art. You know, this was not just public accommodation. It wasn't serving donuts. It wasn't serving food at a restaurant. This was something specifically made as a work of art. Does it have to be something like that for the Religious Liberties Accommodation Act to apply, or could it be any public accommodation? Uh, yeah, the the cake baking incident or, or oper- like the case for cake baking is one where they were saying that it is a creative endeavor and you're infringing on my free speech to be able to say what I want to say through the art of baking a cake. And that's not specifically written out in the um, HB 1523 law that we're talking about. That would cover, that's meant to cover basically anything that would happen in Mississippi. Yeah. Without, without it having to be tied to a freedom of expression, freedom of expression or fr- like freedom of speech. So how can the ACLU help people who, let's say I, I uh, had uh, an issue with a, with 
a place that was a public accommodation. I mean, for a while, for, since um, I grew up in Atlanta, so the, the Heart of Atlanta Hotel is one of the first cases to say you can't discriminate in public accommodation like hotels, um, because th- at that time, the, the Heart of Atlanta Hotel said, hey, we only serve Atlanta and we can exclude black people. Um, and the Supreme Court said, no, that's, you can't. And the Commerce Clause and other things apply. So how, how can this possibly apply, this act possibly apply to override those kind of precedents when we're talking about public accommodation? It's the same kind of argument that you're talking about. Like it is, it is a civil rights issue, and so there are state ACLU's all throughout the country that are bringing cases challenging accommodations prohibitions, and then there are also some states that have anti-discrimination laws that are being challenged from the other side. So, like in um, in some states, you'll have a prohibition against discriminating on LGBTQ status for sexual orientation or gender identity, and those get challenged, and ACLU helps defend, saying that these are a um, reasonable and lawful way to protect people. And I think, McKenna, there might be some people who are always worried after uh, marriage equality um, was uh, provided by the Supreme Court that um, that churches would have to, to marry uh, same-sex couples even if they didn't want to. And that's not the case. That's never been the case, Correct. is it? Yeah, no, that's not the case. Um, no church has been required to host a same-sex wedding or transgender wedding or, or anything. Like, they're they're entirely um, in control of who they marry within their church and who their membership is within their church. So that's not ever been an issue. I mean, I wouldn't, ex- I wouldn't expect, the, you know, a, a, a Baptist church to do my Jewish wedding, for example. There's really exactly. no reason for that similar idea. So... Um, you know, churches have always been able to make those decisions for themselves, and that's not what marriage equality said. And I think there were a lot of people who said, "Well, now we, you know, my church is going to be forced to do this, and we don't we don't believe in it." Um, but it really just provided at least a civil option uh, for for couples who are same sex. So, um, have you have you dealt with or do you have, had any of these cases come up yet with ACLU? We challenged it. When it was enacted in 2016, and it was overturned in the Fifth Circuit on, based on standing, saying that the people had not been harmed yet because the law hadn't gone into effect. And since then, nobody has brought a challenge on that basis. I will point out that there has not, there have not, to my knowledge, been um, very many instances of this act being being used or being challenged. What is absolutely um, true is that multiple city and state governments enacted Mississippi travel bans after this. So there are, uh, that was the response of many states and cities. So they said that you cannot have non-essential publicly funded travel to Mississippi. And that is absolutely still ongoing and something that, that, that is a big effect of the law. It's so interesting. And I think, you know, probably, you know, somebody who runs a restaurant wants as many customers as they can get in the restaurant and probably is not thinking about, you know, um, their their sexual preferences or who they are, you know, who they identify as. I mean, that's, you know, so I'm not surprised it hasn't come up much, and I'm happy it hasn't come up much, but uh, yes, we, uh, there are people who, we, we are doing a search for faculty now, and people say, there's some states I will not go to, and one of them is us, so we worry about the brain drain, but these kind of, these kind of laws actually do keep people from coming to our state mm-hmm. for various I totally agree with that. And it's not just that kind of law. It's it's all sorts of things that happen in Mississippi. Email us your questions. That address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking with attorney McKenna Rainey Gray with 
ACLU of Mississippi about LGBTQ rights. Did you know that sex or gender discrepancies on IDs are not valid reasons to deny a regular ballot in elections? I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill, and we do hope that you will subscribe to our podcast, or you can find MPB Think Radio recordings from the website mpbonline.org slash radio. ACLU Mississippi has, of Mississippi has a printable card on their website. McKenna just showed me a copy of it that, you, that uh, can be presented to poll workers for transgender voters if their gender identity is different than the sex that was recorded on their birth certificate. We'll have a link to that because uh, voting is coming up very soon. This morning, we are talking about LGBTQ rights with our guest attorney, McKenna Rainey Gray with ACLU of Mississippi. And it was a great day that we're having McKenna today, October 11th. And why is that? Today is National Coming Out Day, which is an annual LGBTQ awareness day to support LGBTQIA people coming out. And coming out is just the process of acknowledging and sharing with other people that you are a member of the LGBTQ community. And it's not generally just something you do once and you're done. Sometimes it can be uh, like Ellen DeGeneres. She announced it once and pretty much nobody has had to ask her about that ever again. But in daily life, a lot of people have to come out every time they meet a new person. Um, so it's it's a celebration and awareness that that is something that we are encouraging people to be able to do if they feel comfortable. Yeah. And back in my days, there would always be somebody famous would come out that you might or might not have known uh, was part of the community, the LGBTQ plus community on coming out day. I don't know. Do we have anybody today? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> usually, you know, it now it doesn't seem like it's so much of a thing. All right. Let's go to the phones. We've got Mary calling in from Mobile. Mary, we're glad you're joining in legal terms today. What's your comment or question? Um, I had a question concerning um, pronoun usage and if there are any laws or, I guess, um, that requires people to honor your pronoun. There's some ways that you can enforce that and some, like, if you Generally, you just kind of appeal to human decency, like my name is McKenna. McKenna, if somebody's calling me something other than that, that's going to offend me. And I would, within my um, social circles or organization, be like, can you call me by my actual name? Um, so, you know, appeal to human decency is just a respectful thing to do. But then if you're in an employment situation, sometimes it can be viewed as harassment and discrimination on the basis of your gender identity. It's the same in schools. If people are doing it maliciously, you can bring that up to the school administration and and have a conversation about that. So those are some of the ways that I would try to get that handled in in those contexts. Okay. Um but so but there's no like actual law to protect the preferred pronoun request. Certainly not in Mississippi. Okay. Well, what about in Alabama? Uh, well, you're you're a Mississippi lawyer. You I'm, would Yeah. I, I do Mississippi stuff. There All are, right. Yeah, it, it comes up in other places, but it's it's not um, legislated in Mississippi. Thanks, Mary. We appreciate you calling in today. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, it is just a matter of common human decency, isn't it? I mean, you know, we there wasn't too long ago 
that we uh, had racial terms that were uh, used that, that were offensive to people. And they, they still are used sometimes. And so, I mean, you know, that's just common decency not to use those terms. And when someone says, here's my pronoun, I mean, I think, you know, how hard is it to honor it, uh, really? Uh, so it's not not something that's being dictated by anyone. It's just somebody saying, hey, I'd like for you to, you know, refer to me as, and, and respect that. You know, it's interesting because um, we Liz talked about um, name changes, and we had a show on name changes. And uh, does the ACLU help people who, who want to change uh, their names to match, um, you know, their identity? Yeah, we have a guide that helps people change their names, and we also have people contact us and ask for help on it. I usually tell people when the next clinic is going to be and ask them to sign up for that so that we can pair them with an attorney. Um, we have fillable PDFs that we can send out to somebody if they just want to do it on their own. And the name change guideline walks you from filling out the documents, taking them to the courthouse. Once you've got a judgment saying what your name change is, you you know go to the social security office, change it there, get a different driver's license, all of those things, and that's outlined in the document. Oh, and whoever did that, they were really good with graphics. It's really cute and easy. It's kind of like playing again a game of Candyland or something with the path. It was really very easily understandable. Great. Well, let's let's move on to a law that has come into being in lots of different states. In fact, it was drafted uh, by a lobby who drafts these laws and then basically presents them prepackaged to uh, to state legislatures. And then the Mississippi legislature, at least the, the Senate, adopted it first. And then, uh, so this is Senate Bill uh, 2536. It really called the anti-transgender student athlete law. What What is that? It says that transgender students are not allowed to play on sports teams in Mississippi, high school athletics. And so what, why is that? I mean, are there, are there, first of all, are there a lot of transgender athletes in, in Mississippi? Is this a, a, like become like a major problem? There were no known cases that the legislature was responding to when they were dealing with this legislation. It's it's not like there are. Um, my my belief is that it does not feel safe for high school kids to be trans in Mississippi anyway, and so there we don't have a large amount of students who are um, playing on sports teams in Mississippi in the first place. It, it was definitely not in response to any known or any well-known instances of trans athletes. Um, it's part of a way to uh, have a wedge issue nationwide. It's something that we were the first ones to pass it in 2021. We were the second one to pass it overall. And there's cases that the ACLU has in multiple different states challenging those laws. The, I mean, the argument is that trans students have some sort of advantage in sports. It's not actually legislating against advantages. It's just legislating on the basis of trans identity. And the way that the Mississippi law was written, it shows it, it it is not clear if it applies to only transgender girls, which some of the laws have been written to specify. Um, it really just makes it so that trans kids can't play sports in high school. Well, and I, you know, I, I sincerely doubt that someone is um, is uh, claiming to be trans and going through uh, uh, the hormone treatments and the, the surgeries necessary uh, to complete that process just to play sports. I would think that that would be pretty extreme, but. So, um, so what legal rights do I have? If, if, I mean, I know one's been impacted by that law in Mississippi. If it, or, I mean, what what would somebody in that, what would a family in that situation do? Um, you know, if their child wanted to play sports, 
Yeah, there are constitutionally protected rights in schools to participate in things like sports. And so the lawsuits that ACLU have brought and some of the other states are looking at the Equal Protection Clause and saying that you are not being treated the same because of your gender identity. There's also a, a federal law called Title IX, and that's that basically says that you have to treat students the same based on gender identity, and you're not allowed to discriminate based on that. So those laws, the constitutional protection of the Equal Protection Clause and Title IX, which is that federal law that I was talking about, those are things that people are using in order to be able to protect their rights to um, be a kid and engage in the same kinds of things as their peers. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I mean do, if something like this happened, I mean, if, if, where, where does a person go? I mean, I know they could maybe come to lawyers like you, but what, where would you litigate this? We are monitoring the implementation of those types of bills, and we encourage people to reach out to us so that we can discuss um, how they've been harmed in the enforcement of those laws and uh, give kind of down-to-earth descriptions and explanations of what it would be like to go through litigation, what their rights are, is there anything that they can do short of a lawsuit, um, and it's... uh, a lot of the work that I do in schools is kind of heart-wrenching just because there's so many students in, in Mississippi that just want to get an education and go to public school and do what it is that, that all of, um, I know, that you're legally required to do. You're supposed to go to school. You're supposed to learn. You're supposed to try and, and master the material. And so many kids are required to think about um, things that are outside of that. And they're limited in the ways that they can interact in schools. And that's um, this is one of the examples of that. So if anybody has questions about that or or they have specifically been harmed by that law, then I would definitely reach out to us. Well, you know, um, one uh, kind of protector of uh, U.S. constitutional rights has always been the U.S. Supreme Court. And in fact, you know, um, with marriage equality, for example, um, all you know, those things took place fairly recently. But does the current makeup of the uh, Supreme Court raise concerns about the rights of LGBT? BTQ. It certainly does. Yeah, it, it really gives me pause because the federal courts have been a way that we have been able to access remedies, particularly in Mississippi. If you feel like your state court is state court or state uh, Supreme Court are not going to be able to protect rights that you believe you have, even if they're state rights. Um, and the, the federal courts that, you know, were ultimately reviewed by the Fifth Circuit, which has never been good for LGBTQ people. And then beyond that, it's the Supreme Court. So that makeup of people that are not particularly interested in protecting those rights, uh, that is concerning and definitely impacts the way that I do my job. So, I mean, there's some talk, you know, after after um, uh, Roe versus Wade was struck down, that this could also happen to um, marriage equality as well. Is that, I mean, is that something that's, a, you know, a real concern that a case could come up? And then, and then what would happen? It is a real concern, and it is a concern on the scale of years. It is not something that would happen tomorrow. So we we have gotten calls of people that are um, in a justifiable panic because they're afraid that their marriage is going to be overturned or their family structure is going to be – I mean, family structures are kind of systematically being um, shown to be not as important as other types. So people are worried about their families, uh, like their marriages and their adoptions of their kids, um, second parent adoption, all those kinds of things being – um, attacked in the future. So in the way that the Roe v. Wade decision, the Dobbs, the Jackson Women's Health Organization versus Dobbs opinion was written, Justice Thomas 
had some uh, choice words about how he didn't think that any of the unenumerated rights to privacy should actually exist. And a couple of the ones that he listed were um, contraception between married partners and uh, Obergefell has specifically been pointed out as one that he does not like or did not approve of in the first place. And uh, same-sex intimacy is also one that's on that list. Those kinds of things are uh, thing objectives that uh, certain demographics have been attacking and trying to dismantle for a long period of time. And there are not necessarily a clear majority on the court right now of people who would like tomorrow overturn those kinds of things, but it depends on the way that the case would be worded and how it would be um, the posture of it as it goes up on appeal to the Supreme Court, how dangerous it is uh, to those kinds of things. I also like to think about how attacks on trans people, figurative and literal, are a very real, very right now issue. And so I I totally understand that feeling like you are um, – your family is under attack in the future is uh, scary and it's causing people all around the country to move to other places and anti-trans violence legislation and um, animus are, are widespread in Mississippi right now. Well, that's a shame because we are getting so much of a drain of younger people from Mississippi. I've had two individuals in my family move out. And if we, want to retain individuals, if we want to attract individuals. Professor Gershon can't hire some folks at the university. Um, Being the hospitality state, we might want to try to embrace that a little bit better. I agree. We have time this this afternoon, this morning, whatever time of day (laughs) it is. We would love for you to call in. You know, it's a safe space. If you don't want to say what your name is, you could be John or Susan. Uh, we would love to take your questions if you have a question about yourself or a family member or a neighbor, whatever it is. This is a safe space. We would uh, like to respect your person. Uh, you, we want to take respectful questions. We can take your questions on our email address. That address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Our guest is attorney McKenna Rainey Gray with ACLU of Mississippi. So, talking about elections, because that's how your rights are determined sometimes. <laughs> what if you're registered to vote, but you can't make it to the polls on Tuesday, November 8th for the general election? I've got some news for you next. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are most of our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Don't forget, at 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedy, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. All right, folks, absentee ballots are available now. Absentee ballots are available now, and absentee voting is available during the work week and on the morning of Saturday, October 29th, for our November 8th election at your circuit clerk's office. Now, remember, to vote absentee, you have to have a valid reason. 
So, but that's a that's a that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother show. We're talking today with attorney McKenna Rainey Gray with the ACLU of Mississippi about LGBTQ rights. Hey, McKenna, I found it so interesting that uh, Justice Thomas said he he doesn't agree with the Supreme Court's previous decision because he is in a mixed race marriage, which used to be illegal until the U.S. Supreme Court in Loving versus Virginia said. States can't prohibit people of different races from, from marrying. Um, and and so it almost seems like he's really kind of questioning his, his own marriage, too, because that was based on similar principles as Obergefell. Um, so uh, Obergefell, I always, I always have trouble with that. That's why I always say marriage Marriage equality, equality. yeah. It's just easy. Um, so, you know, um, but what would, I mean, I don't know that we know this, but what would happen I mean, if, if the Supreme Court said, no more marriage equality. Does that mean people who are currently legally married in Mississippi would then not be legally married, or would it only affect people going forward? I'm, I, how would that? What would that? What would be the effect of that? It would be really complicated to try to claw back marriages that have already been validly entered into, and there would be a host of procedural um, issues with invalidating a marriage that that has already existed for any period of time. I think there would be due process arguments that you um, should not be able to invalidate a marriage that is already valid and was valid at the time that it was entered into. So I think that if that did happen, it would depend on the way that the case went to the Supreme Court. Um, It would have to be something that they were really gung-ho about overturning, particularly since Obergefell was only decided in 2015. So that's a really short period of time to change your mind when you're required to rely on previously decided cases like the Supreme Court is. So I would not worry that marriages as they exist are um, in limbo or or have some sort of issue going forward, I think that it would be not surprising for that to be legislated in Mississippi, but it would be heavily contested and heavily fought over because Obergefell really was revolutionary, not just in people being able to get married, but also family structures. You've got people that um, we had a anti-gay adoption statute from 2000 to 2016 that was overturned on the basis of Obergefell. So we've got all sorts of ways that people form families and and create um, family structures that are have, have been improved by Obergefell. So I, I think that that is uh, a tomorrow problem, and I think that it would be something that going forward, if it was overturned, it would basically be that no more marriages in states that um, prohibit them would be able to be entered into in the future. But I think the ones that we have right now would still be safe. We have a phone call. Let's go to Picayune and talk with, no, we not just yet. <laughs> in just a minute, we will. It is so unsettling. I know that the law changes and the law grows, but for it to grow and then contract and then grow again, it is very disconcerting for all of Americans. I agree. And that that level of instability is one of the reasons that people don't want to move to Mississippi um, or or be in states that that have those kinds of uh, tendencies, discriminatory tendencies, that they would be able to legislate that as soon as they can um, and as soon as they are able. McKenna, while we're waiting for the call, um, so the ACLU, one of the things that your project does is, is protect the rights of students. And and so what I know you've got great resources on your website. Talk a little bit about some of the things you do on behalf of students. 
We've got little comic booklets that show oh, those are Know so Your cute. Rights in, for LGBTQ students in Mississippi. Um, and we're about to do a reprint of them, but the panels of them are available on the website. And it is a lot of the same type of information that we have just in Word format on our website and ACLU National's website. But it go, goes over some of the rights that students have in um, – like bathrooms and locker rooms and uh, being harassed in school, being able to take a same-sex date to prom or homecoming, uh, like what what your rights are in terms of being protected from bullying in school and those kinds of things. And that's great. And by the way, um, I, I don't know that everybody knows this, but how is the ACLU funded? We have uh, donations that come from all over. So we, if you make a donation to the ACLU, that also ends up coming to us through um, grants and things like that. And you can also donate to the ACLU of Mississippi by going onto our website. So it's not, you don't, you're not a for-profit organization and you're also uh, don't get a lot of government support either. Correct. Yeah. We, we run on donations and grants. All right. So I, I will make a picture of the ACLU that if you like the work they do, and you do it, you don't care what somebody's political beliefs are. It's it's about, this is about protecting people's rights. Um, then they're an organization worth supporting. And I'm not allowed to say that on TV. But anyway. Yeah. I, I, I do have an example about that. So a lot of the work that I did over the summer was about dress codes. So there are a lot of schools in Mississippi that have explicitly gendered dress codes in their student handbooks. And so we sent letters to schools saying, that's not okay. You need to remove the explicitly gendered language from your handbooks. And you also need to make sure that you're not discriminatorily enforcing uh, your dress code within your school. And that is not solely an LGBTQ issue. That is a wide ranging um, thing that, that covers Generally, um, female, female presenting femme students are more heavily policed in their bodies in schools. And it also covers um, like people of color usually have stricter rules that they have to um, abide by within a school just based on the way that someone is visibly enforcing the the dress code. So it's LGBTQ students because you have um, queer students that want to dress a certain way or trans students that want to dress a certain way. And especially, especially if there are um, explicitly gendered dress codes, then that is going to be problematic for forcing a student to wear one type of clothes or, or another. But like I said, it also covers um, girl students and people of color and all, all, all kinds of students like that. So, you know, what, um, what other issues for LGBTQ uh, people do you think are most pressing um, in the next few years? I'll talk about something that is coming up a lot right now in the work that I do. Um, I don't know that it, like it is the most pressing thing, but we have a lot of book censorship issues that are coming through in our intakes and people reaching out to us talking about uh, public libraries or school libraries that are banning usually race-related or people of color authors, authors of color writing books and those books being um, outright banned or restricted in some way in schools. Uh, that also generally covers usually there's at least one queer book that's thrown in into the mix. So those are the kinds of things that I get a lot of intakes and calls and discussions about. And we have a book ban toolkit and pledge that you can sign on our website. So we have these I read banned books bookmarks to show people that that's a, an issue that they care about. And on the back, it has banned books by Mississippi authors. Doesn't necessarily mean that they were banned in Mississippi, but authors from Mississippi, because we really like to brag about our literature and writing history. And it's just really counterintuitive to say 
we're really, really proud of Angie Thomas, but you can't read her book if you are in um, high school. <laughs> Professor Kirsten and I are just sitting here kind of shaking our heads. I know I attended the Mississippi Book Festival, MPB, and the education department had uh, played a, a, a big part of that. And, you know, it is wonderful to to celebrate our authors. And it's it's just so sad when someone has something to say, they get national acclaim for it. You know, aside from the fact if, you know, you just write something yourself and print it yourself, if you are an award-winning, nationally acclaimed artist and people are not able to access your your work of art, that's... Well, I guess the, the answer to your question, now that I'm thinking about it, is a lot of things that I... Um, worry about are just the climate that we live in in Mississippi. Because if you have anti-trans legislation proposed, which is going to happen next session, definitely, it doesn't even have to get passed for it to have a negative repercussion. Yeah, that's um, just the climate in Mississippi that needs to improve. And that's something I'm working on. Well, and you know, there's an election. Maybe that's something you can do. Every vote helps. Thank you so much. McKenna Rainey Gray with ACLU of Mississippi. Thank you for being with us today. I appreciate it. You took a whole, you took time out of your day to prepare and to come. We do appreciate that and don't take that lightly. Thank you for listening to In Legal Terms today. Uh, our team is Jay White and our intern Charles Arnold. For Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Please join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.